Let's open our Bibles together, though, to the book of James, chapter 2. James, chapter 2. I'm excited to to be back um, in this book again. After not preaching last Sunday, I found myself, uh, as yesterday afternoon was rolling along, getting excited about this morning and excited to come and preach again. It felt like it had been such a long time. Uh, This book has been such a blessing to me. We are in James chapter 2. We're picking up in verse 14. That's where we left off two weeks ago. So as you are able, let's stand together once more in honor of the word of the Lord. Again, not out of some kind of empty ritualism. We do this to remind ourselves that we are under the authority of God's word. We'll begin reading in James chapter 2 from verse 14. Hear now the word of the Lord. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by, by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. But someone will say, you have faith, I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Let's pray together. Almighty God, we do thank you for your living, supernatural, inerrant word. For this good and pure and perfect gift that you have given to us, your church, your people, that through your word, by your Holy Spirit's work in us, we hear the voice of our God. Or that you, by that same Spirit, through that same Word, have brought us from death into life, from blindness into sight, from from deaf ears that, that could not hear your call, to ears that hear now your voice, that long for your voice. And I pray by your Spirit, through your Word, you'd accomplish all of your good purposes in us and among us. I pray for myself today, Lord, as I proclaim your Word, that the words of my mouth, the meditations of my heart would be pleasing in your sight. O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen, you can be seated. In 1970, a two-time Nobel Prize winning scientist named Linus Pauling wrote a book called Vitamin C and the Common Cold. It's a fitting topic for this time of year where some of you like me cannot get rid of this cough for well over a month now. In this book, he claimed high doses, very high doses of vitamin C could prevent and cure colds. He became convinced that vitamin C could cure an assortment of diseases, even add decades to your life. So he began taking 18,000 milligrams a day of vitamin C. That's the equivalent of eating 250 oranges a day. Well, the book became a bestseller. The vitamin C trend was born. All of a sudden, stores couldn't keep vitamin C on their shelves. They sold 10 times the amount that they'd ever sold before that. And consumers came to believe our very first line of defense against colds should be vitamin C. Later, Pauling expanded his claims of what vitamin C was capable of. Not only can it cure the common cold, it can cure the flu. Again, good news. We have a number of people out with the flu this morning. So his best-selling book was re-edited and republished with additional content under the name Vitamin C, The Common Cold, and The Flu. 
He continued to tell people about the wonders of vitamin C, this, this miraculous thing. He said it could prevent and cure other diseases as well, not just colds, not just the flu, but most notably cancer. So he published another book, Vitamin C and Cancer. He even claimed taking massive amounts of vitamin C and some other supplements could keep you completely free of disease altogether. Now, as you can imagine, his research faced some criticism, uh, even in his day. To this day, his legacy is quite controversial. Though he was a brilliant man, and no one can deny that, he's basically considered a quack because study after study disproved the claims that he was making. And in 1994, 24 years after publishing his best-selling book, he died in his home in California. Linus Pauling, the scientist who claimed vitamin C could cure every disease, including cancer, who claimed it will add decades to your life if you take mega doses above any recommended level, which he did faithfully and taught others to do the same. What did this scientist die from? Cancer. His obituary was published in the Los Angeles Times. His story is a story of false hope. He trusted in a cure that could keep him from dying, and it turned out it couldn't. It couldn't deliver. That's the tragedy of false hopes. They, they don't produce what they've promised. They don't, they don't come through with what, what they promise you that they can do. They, they promise a rescue from a bad future, but they're not actually capable of delivering on that promise. And people put their hopes in all kinds of things. Some are true. Some are not. Oh, if we can just get through this next election. If we can just get the right guy in office, he won't let us down. This economic downturn we're in, it's sure to turn around soon. It's just around the corner. This new diet's for sure going to work. It's going to stick this time. This job is, is going to be better than the last job, than the one I just left. This, this new device I've got, this is going to make me so much more productive. It's not going to be a time waster. This health scare that I'm facing, it's all going to turn out okay. And the answer in all those cases is maybe, but maybe not. The trouble with hope is hope's only as good as the object in which you're placing your hope. If you put your hope in something that's not true, if it's not secure, if it's not certain, if it's not rock solid, 100% sure, then you really don't have Hope that things are going to turn out exactly the way you want. That things are going to turn out to your benefit or for your good. And, and the worst of all false hopes is one thing to trust in vitamin C and eventually die of cancer, a wealthy man. The worst of all false hopes is false spiritual hope. It's the most disastrous. That those who trust in anything other than the one true God put their hope in something that is sure to bring them ruin. God has promised that. That is sure. God has promised that he will judge sin. That he will defend his glory on the day of judgment. That is a sure thing, but God has also made another sure promise, and that is this. Those who trust in Christ will be saved from that. Will be saved from the wrath of God poured out against sin. That is a hope we can count on. That is a 100% sure hope. Whoever believes in the Son 
will have eternal life. Whoever confesses with their mouth, Jesus is Lord, believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, what? Will be saved. But not everyone who says they believe in Christ will be saved. Because there's a difference between merely saying Jesus is Lord and saying Jesus is Lord because your heart has been transformed. False faith will not save. It won't save because it's not true faith. You might recall Jesus addressed this in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapter 7. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21, Jesus says this, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, cast out demons in your name, and do many mighty works in your name? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Hear hear how horrifying that is. Many will come before the throne on the day of judgment and their expectation, Jesus says, will be that they will receive a warm welcome. They will be welcomed as as sons. They will expect open arms and celebration and instead they will receive condemnation from Christ. Many, Jesus says. This kind of false faith that believes it is in possession of something that it is actually not, is unfortunately very common. Many, Jesus says. Many will come to him saying, Lord, Lord. Many. And he'll say to those many, I never knew you. There's an epidemic in the church today of self-deception. Many churches are filled. And I mean filled with false Converts, those who believe themselves to be saved and yet are not. Those, those exact people, the many that Jesus describes here in Matthew 7, who are expecting to stand before the judgment throne of God and be received with gladness and instead will face condemnation. One of the major reasons for this is the attractional church model that is so popular in our world today, but certainly in our country. Churches appeal to, churches manipulate the emotions. And a naive and worldly people are drawn to the entertainment and to the goosebumps that these so-called worship experiences are designed to elicit. And we have in our minds big churches, fog machines, Expensive lighting rigs, giant bands, lots of props in the sermons and and, and going all out in the decorations. And we go, yeah, I get it. People go there and they're moved by the chord structures, which are designed to, to make you feel emotions. And they think that's the Holy Spirit. And we can see right through it. And we don't think of the little country church where the pastor stomps and shouts and and bounces himself around the stage while he's wiping sweat from his brow while he's preaching not the Bible, but something else. And the band, uh, whatever it may look like, is playing the favorite style of country bluegrass music that all the people love. And they go, feel the Holy Spirit move in this place because of my goosebumps. This is an epidemic. And it's not just in one stream of the church. 
And people who aren't genuinely converted think they are because they were moved emotionally. Because they felt goosebumps. They were emotionally moved by whatever their preferred style of music is. Gospel or rock and roll. Or hymns. They were moved by the motivational speech that they heard. Old-timey Baptist stomping and shouting or, or some kind of newfangled motivational speech in a church with lots of props. Whatever it is. It's an epidemic. Another big part of this is owing to how evangelism is commonly done. I've been asked many times over the years, why don't you do altar calls? Some have left our church because... I don't do altar calls. Walk down the aisle, come to the front, come to the stage. Well, for starters, I don't do them because we don't have an altar. Christ is our altar. There's no altar to come to. We've got some steps, and I stand up a little higher so you can see me in the pulpit, but it is Christ we are presenting week after week. But whatever it is, come forward, raise your hand. Get people to make a profession of faith. Maybe you take them somewhere and they they pray a repeat after me prayer. This is the common way that this is done. Well, the first reason I don't do it is we don't see it anywhere in the New Testament. (coughs) Nothing, anything like this appears in the New Testament. No raising of hands, no walking of aisles. Nothing like it, nothing even remotely like it is in Scripture. It was popularized by Charles Finney in the 19th century. Charles Finney might be a name you recognize. He was the leader of the so-called Second Great Awakening, which wasn't so great. Finney was a heretic, a false teacher, in all likelihood a false convert, not even a Christian himself. And he put practices like this in place, and he said why he was doing it. Because it will move people emotionally. And we'll get a bigger response. And that's what they did. And that's what happened. Now did I just say that altar calls are sinful? No. I didn't. You might be sitting here already and you're already kind of done with me for the day. Because you had a wonderful experience at an altar call. Praise God. Countless thousands have had a wonderful experience at an altar call. And for that, I say, glory be to God. That doesn't mean the practice is more helpful than it is harmful. It doesn't make the practice biblical. And we should be able to say that without going, you've just undermined a wonderful experience I had 35 years ago. No, praise God for your wonderful experience. It doesn't make it biblical. I'm saying this because I love you. I'm saying this because I love Christ and I love his church. I'm saying this because there's an epidemic of false converts in the church. And and, and much of it is owing to the way we do things and insist on doing things that we don't realize doesn't come from the Bible. It comes from our culture. It's things like this that are, they accidentally... With the best of intentions, teach the wrong message. They, they confuse some physical act of coming forward with genuine conversion. There's a danger in offering false assurance on the grounds of a mere profession of faith. And that's why Jesus says many, many people will stand before the very throne of God expecting a warm welcome. 
They will get all the way to the finish line. And stand before the throne of the holy judge of all the universe. Before whom we should all quake. And they won't be quaking. They will expect a warm welcome and instead they'll hear, depart from me, I never knew you. How do you know that you're not one of them? How do you know that you're not self-deceived? This letter from Jesus' brother James is all about helping us know. This letter is all about helping us to know for sure. It, it helps us to diagnose our heart, to diagnose our lives to see whether we are suffering from self-deception. And a couple of weeks ago, I pointed out, we could, we could think of this whole letter of James as a, as a spiritual examination, as a test, paragraph after paragraph, showing us this is how genuine saving faith manifests itself in the life of a true Christian. He presses us to examine our lives, to, to see whether we have true faith in Christ. James repeatedly holds the mirror of God's truth up in front of us and says, see what you really look like. What a kindness this is. What a kindness this is of our brother to preach so boldly in his letter. What a kindness of God to give us such direct teaching. See what you really look like. He calls us to, to closely examine our lives in the light of God's truth. To see, does, do our lives match the characteristics of one who has true saving faith? Of the one he describes in his letter. And so in chapter 1 we learn how true Christians respond to trials and temptations. We, we learn how true Christians respond to God's word. True Christians are doers of the word. In chapter 2 we learn how true Christians respond to people with Needs to people who are different than us. These, these descriptions are given to us so that we will examine our lives next to them and say, do I look like this? Now as we come to the second half of chapter 2, we, we learn of what one commentator calls the composite test. This, this test that summarizes all the others. James, tell, James tells us that faith is evident in the way a person lives. You don't get saved by the way you, that you live. But how you live tells the truth about what you really believe. Whether your profession of faith is real. The thing about faith is this. You can't see it. It's not a visible thing. You can possess it, but you can't see it. You can only see evidence of it. You can't see faith. You can only see evidence of faith. It's like the wind. You can't see the wind, but you can tell when it's there. You can see the evidence of the wind. When someone is truly trusted in Christ, their life will give evidence. Their life will demonstrate that reality. It's a sure thing. So someone who truly believes in Christ will live differently than someone who doesn't. True saving faith is, is not merely a thought. It's not merely an experience. It's not merely an emotion. True saving faith is a whole life trust in Christ that causes you to bear fruit in keeping with salvation. To bear fruit in keeping with repentance and faith. In other words, you can't hide true saving faith. If it's real, it will be manifest. 
If it's genuine, it will be evident. That is always true. It's true because when God saves you, he makes you a new creation. Right? He gives you a new mind and a new heart and a new will to follow him. And so true saving faith is a transformation and it's a transformation you can't hide. It will be evident in your life. There will be evidence that this has happened. And so true believers will be characterized by their trust in Christ and by their obedience to God. So James tells us in chapter 2 that, that your works, your works, that, that, that is your conduct, your behavior, your actions, the way you live, that, that your works will give powerful evidence to whether your faith is real or whether your faith is counterfeit. And in today's text, James explains to us there's a kind of faith that cannot save There's a kind of faith that cannot save. And the faith that cannot save, James says, is a faith without works. This passage, these are some of the most well-known words in this entire letter. They are some of the most controversial. The reason they're controversial is because they're addressing that relationship between faith and Works. It's a relationship that is frequently misunderstood. It's a misunderstanding that has eternal consequence. If you misconstrue, misconstrue what James is saying here about how faith and works relate to one another, you may deceive yourself into thinking you're saved when you're really not. So we need to be careful. We need to be careful about what James says here. And we need to be careful about what James doesn't say here. As James explains faith and works in this passage, he begins by showing us the marks of false faith. In other words, he describes forth, as as he has been describing and will continue to describe in this letter, what genuine faith looks like, how it manifests itself. He's now going to describe for us how false faith manifests itself. So this passage really becomes for us a way to test ourselves. One more, one more of those tests that we see in all of James to see whether our faith is real, whether we've been self-deceived, to see whether we have a faith that saves or a faith that does not save. And we should not be afraid or offended by this kind of examination from God's word. We should welcome it. Search me, O God, and know my thoughts. See if there be any wicked way in me. Examine yourself. See if you're in the faith. We should welcome this. So we begin our study with the first mark of false faith. That's the only one we're going to get through today. The first one. That was all introduction. We're ready to start the sermon. The first mark of false faith. False faith is marked by a false profession. A false profession. Look at verse 14. What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James begins here in verse 14 by asking two related questions. What what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith and does not have works? Question number two. Can that faith save him? 
The, the way these questions are worded, both in English and in Greek, anticipates a negative answer for both questions. The answer to question number one is, it's not of any good if someone says he has faith but doesn't have works. The answer to question number two is, no, such a faith can't save him. And so these questions actually work like assertions. James telling us something more than he is asking us something. His point is, a faith that does not produce works cannot save As Rich Mullins once sang, it's about as useless as a screen door on a submarine. You gotta be of a certain age to appreciate Rich Mullins. And if you're not of that age, you should look up Rich Mullins and appreciate him. Don't miss that little word though, says. Says in the first question. It's key to understanding what James says in all the verses that follow. What good is it if someone says he has faith? In other words, it's not that they do for sure have true faith. It's that they claim to have faith. They say that they have faith. And James isn't even questioning the sincerity of their confession. As we saw in the words of Jesus in Matthew 7, there are many who are making this claim from a place of genuinely thinking that they're right. No, he's not questioning the sincerity of their confession. He is questioning the genuineness of their confession. Someone may really believe, really believe that they believe in Christ. That's what's so insidious about self-deception. James is saying that a person's claim or sincerely held belief doesn't necessarily mean that they actually have saving faith. You can be sincere, but you can be sincerely wrong. You can have a false profession of faith in Christ. And if anyone would know a thing or two about that, it'd be James. Let me show you that. Turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 2, with me. As we see James, who knows what this looks like. In John, chapter 2, Jesus has performed his first miracle at the wedding feast in Cana, turning the water into wine. At the end of that chapter, in verse 23 of John 2, John makes this comment. When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Oh, that sounds great. That sounds very good. Jesus performed miracles. As a result, many, there's that word again, many believed in his name. It sounds like they got saved. But then John doesn't stop writing and we go on to the next verse in verse 24. But, well, that's not good. Many believed in his name because they saw the signs he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and he needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. That's a significant choice of words there. It's not an accident. He didn't entrust himself to them. There, there's a, a play on words going on in verses 23 and 24. The word believe in verse 23, many believed in him and the word entrust in verse 24 are the same word. 
So to John, John here is contradicting one of those trite little sayings that contributes to the epidemic of false conversion in our world today where people say things like, you may not believe in God, but God believes in you. Now here's what John says. Many believed in Jesus, but Jesus did not believe in them. They had faith in him. He did not have faith in their faith. John could have made that comment in several places in his gospel, but he mentions it right here in chapter two for a strategic reason. He wants the reader to understand right from the beginning of his gospel that in all the stories that are gonna follow, not everyone who says they believe in Jesus has saving faith. There's a kind of belief That is not saving belief. In fact, the very next person John is going to mention in his gospel is a man named Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a prime example of this. Someone who liked Jesus. Someone who is in awe of Jesus, but someone who did not believe in Jesus savingly. Nicodemus had formed, as as he is introduced to us in the gospel of John, a shallow, non-saving belief in Jesus based on the miracles that Jesus had performed. John signals this to us through a repetition of words. Verse 23, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. Verse 25, Jesus needed no one to bear witness about man For he himself knew what was in man. Now the very next verse, in chapter 3, verse 1. Now there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher come from God. Can no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him? Nicodemus is exactly the person that John's talking about. In chapter 2, verses 23 through 25, he goes right into an example of these kind of people in Nicodemus, a man who believed in Jesus because of his signs. What kind of belief did Nicodemus have? Well, according to what we just read, he believed at least three things about Jesus. One, he believed Jesus was a teacher come from God. That's what he says. Second, he believed Jesus did signs. Third, he believed that God was with Jesus in the doing of signs. All of those beliefs about Jesus are absolutely true. He was right in what he believed about Jesus. And yet, the rest of the story demonstrates Nicodemus didn't have saving faith in Jesus because he wasn't born again. That's what the text would tell us if we continued to read. You need to be born again. And Nicodemus had no idea what Jesus was talking about when he said that. So professing true things about Jesus is not the same thing as possessing saving faith in Jesus. Now what's that got to do with James? Well, just like Nicodemus, James initially believed certain true things about his brother. But James didn't possess saving faith in his brother. If you flip a couple pages over to John chapter 7... You'll see this as Jesus' brothers are urging him to go to Jerusalem. John chapter 7, verse 2, 
says this. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go to Judea that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. James and the other brothers want Jesus to take his miracle working power on the road. Take it to Jerusalem. Jerusalem, which is going to be packed with people because of the Feast of Booths. Go here to to where the crowds are, the massive crowds that have come for the festival, the Jewish leaders. Go to all of them in Jerusalem. Do your miracle working there and let them see who you really are. A miracle worker. They believed that. (coughs) They believed that Jesus could work miracles. They'd seen them with their own eyes. They had to believe. And it was true. Jesus worked miracles. But then John tells us the real reason they want him to go. I mean, that sounds pretty good. Go so they can see the, the, the mighty power that you possess. But then John tells us this. In verse 5, for not even his brothers believed in him. <coughs> they, didn't, they didn't urge Jesus to go show himself to the world because they actually believed in him. It was, John says, because they did not believe in him. In other words, they believed Jesus was a miracle worker. But what they did not believe was that Jesus was the son of God. So so to believe that that Jesus was the Son of God would have meant something significant for his brothers. They, they, They would have needed to put their whole trust in him. They hadn't done that. They believed true things about him. They couldn't deny that he taught with authority. They couldn't deny that he worked miracles. But believing and professing true things about Jesus is not the same thing as possessing true saving faith in Jesus. And so a false faith can make a false profession. But it's not a saving profession that comes from a regenerated heart. There's a difference between those two things. So back to what James says in his letter in chapter 2. James asks this question, what good is it? If someone says he has faith but does not have works. If you claim to possess faith but you don't have corresponding works, what good is your faith? James asks. What good is it? This word good, it's it's what benefit is it? What advantage is it? What profit is it? Jesus uses the same word in, in the verb form in Matthew 16 verse 26. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and loses his soul? It's really what James is kind of getting at. What what profit is, is it to you on the day of judgment if you say you have faith but don't have works? If all you have is a profession of faith and that profession is empty, James says that faith will not save you at all. Now again, this is where we have to be careful with what James is saying and what James is not saying. Don't misunderstand him. He's not saying that works must be added to your faith in order to be saved. He's not saying that faith plus works is what saves. Rather, he's indicating good works accompany true faith. 
Good works spring from saving faith. True faith will always produce righteous deeds in the life of a true believer. True faith will produce obedience. True faith will produce the obedience of faith. It is a sure thing. It is a sure fruit. In Ephesians chapter 2, the the classic passage that teaches us that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, the Apostle Paul writes this in verse 8 of Ephesians chapter 2. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It's the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. 100% clear. You can't miss it. By grace you've been saved through faith, not a result of works, not your own doing. It's the work of God. (coughs) You have no room for boasting. But then he says this in verse 10. (coughs) Excuse me. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So we're not saved by good works, but we are saved for good works or unto good works. (coughs) Excuse me. Your works will not get you into heaven, but works will accompany those who go to heaven. Works will accompany those who will go to heaven. And so our works don't add merit to our faith, but, but it's not as though works don't matter. They do. Faith necessarily produces obedience if it's real. If it's real, it will bear fruit. And so in our, in our zeal to affirm that we are not saved by works, and we must gladly and zealously affirm that time and time again, we are not saved by works. We, we must distinguish between faith and works. We, we must Distinguish them. We need to know the difference. We need to get the order right. It's not good works leads to faith. It's, it's genuine faith produces good works. But we also need to be careful not to sever faith and works. The, the reformers distinguished between the two things without severing them. They insisted that we are justified by faith alone, but not by a faith that is alone. Is accompanied by righteous good works, by the fruit of salvation. In, in other words, a faith that's real will always bear a certain kind of fruit. It will always bear the fruit of obedience, particularly in love for God and love for people. A love that manifests itself in how one lives. But false faith produces false confessions. The lack of true saving faith will become apparent. Just as, as true saving faith, when present in a person, will always give evidence, so too will the lack of saving faith become apparent over time in a person's life because of a lack of works of love for God and love for people. <coughs> Excuse me. And sadly, there are, are many people we know who have a profession, they have made a profession of faith at some point. Perhaps they persist in that. Consistently claiming that they belong to God, that they are a worshiper of Christ and a Christian. And yet their lives don't match. They don't have a desire for the things of God. They don't have a longing to obey him. 
They don't fight against sin. They don't strive for holiness. They're apathetic towards the word and prayer and the things of God. They don't pursue godly relationships. They don't pursue Christian fellowship. They don't seem to value the local church at all, really. And at least not in any way that involves accountability. They may seem sincere. And they may sincerely believe that they are going to heaven. They may even be able to articulate the gospel clearly and accurately. They may have impressive theological knowledge, but their lives tell a different story. By their fruit, you shall know them. That's what Jesus says. And their lives tell a different story. Maybe you're like that. Maybe years ago, you prayed a prayer. You walked an aisle. You raised your hand. You asked Jesus into your heart, whatever it was. But friend, hear me. If your life is not marked by obedient works, you have no cause to believe that your faith is saving faith. Does your life match your profession of faith? Over time, the way you live your life will tell the true story. The way a person lives their life will tell the true story about them. The Protestant reformers helped us to understand that. That a true profession of faith is not mere words. Faith in Christ is, is a gift from God that has three dimensions, they said. Saving faith involves the mind and the emotions and the will. Three essential components to saving faith that the reformers brought forth. They called it notitia, ascensus, and fiducia. Well, you know what all those words mean. You don't need me to explain that to you. <laughs> knowledge, assent, and trust. Notitia, the knowledge, the content of our faith, that which we believe. Saving faith begins when you know the truth of the gospel. In order to believe something, in order to put your trust in it, you have to know it. You have to know about it. We must know the truth. We must know the truth about ourselves, about our sin. We must know the truth that we are under the wrath of God. Then we have to know about salvation, that it's found only in Christ. <coughs> that he has made a way for us through his sinless life and his substitutionary death, through his glorious resurrection. We have to know this or we cannot be saved. R.C. Sproul said, I cannot have God in my heart if he's not first in my head. I have to know it. His mentor, John Gerstner, used to say, nothing can enter the sanctuary of the heart unless it first passes through the vestibule of the mind. It's notitia. It's, it's the right knowledge. Faith knows and understands the gospel of Jesus. But knowing the facts is not enough. That brings us to a census. That, that's the conviction that the content of our faith is true. You can know all about the gospel but not believe it. And what good does that do you? There, there are many biblical scholars, brilliant men, in liberal seminaries who have vast knowledge of scripture, brilliant minds, they can tell you all kinds of things about Jesus. They can even articulate for you the gospel, but they don't believe it. They don't agree with it. 
You must be convinced. You must believe that the gospel message is absolute truth from God. Saving faith embraces the gospel as true. You must believe it or you can never be saved. But even knowing it and even believing it is not enough. We read this morning and we'll get there next week. In verse 19, James says, even the demons believe. They don't trust him. They shudder. These things culminate then. They come together in, in, in the final piece, fiducia. The act of the will. Entrusting ourselves into the hands of Christ. Faith is only effectual if knowing and believing the gospel causes one to trust in the Lord Jesus Christ alone for salvation. True saving faith is a surrender of the will. That's a crucial element. It involves the intellect, yes. It involves the mind, yes. But it goes beyond that to the heart and to the will. So the whole person is caught up in the experience that we call faith. True true saving faith is a a total experience. It It is a total reliance on Christ to save. It's a casting of yourself completely upon him for mercy and pardon for sin. This and only this is the faith that saves. It's the only one. And a faith that saves will produce good works because it's what what Martin Luther called a living faith. It's alive, it's active, it's, it's producing something, it is bearing fruit. Works of obedience are the sure result of the Holy Spirit of God working through the word of God to regenerate, to, to bring to life the sinner. Working in him genuine saving faith. So the question is, as we see this teaching from our brother James, as as the mirror of God's truth is held up in front of us and we're caused to to examine ourselves in the light of it, the question is, do you have true faith or are you self-deceived? Is there a reason for your hope or do you have false hope? What does your life say about you? Your life will tell the truth. We need to know this. Lest again we fall into this, the despair of, of our own working out our own righteousness based on our own merits. Even a mustard seed of true faith is enough to save a person. It's not a matter ever of, of the measure of our faith. It's a matter of the object of our faith. But that mustard seed of true faith will produce over time a harvest of righteousness. It will. Has there been a harvest of righteousness in your life? Look at your life. Compare it with what James has written. Does it match? There's a challenge for all of us here. It's a challenge we should welcome. I I don't think any of us, as the truth of God's word is held up in front of us, If you come away from that going, I look pretty good. You know who says that? It's the many who will stand before the judgment throne expecting a welcome and receiving condemnation. All of us, because God loves us, 
All of us, because God's spirit dwells within us. All of us, because God is holy. When, when the, the, the mirror of God's truth is held in front of us, we see ourselves rightly. And like the Apostle Paul, we say, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? We don't come away thinking we're the best and the brightest. But the the, the Spirit of God doesn't stop there. Because His Spirit dwells within us. What does He do immediately? He lifts our eyes off of our own dumb reflection onto Christ. That's what God does for His people. And we should welcome this. Where we are weak, there He is strong. Let's pray together. Almighty God, thank You for Your Word. Thank You for the work of Your Spirit in us. Lord, for your love in us. Thank you for the conviction of your Holy Spirit, which is evidence to us that you love us, that you would never abandon us, that you intend to finish the good work you've begun in us. And I thank you, Lord, for for every step along that way. Lord, all all of the means that you have used to draw us to yourself. Lord, I thank you for your sure promise to complete the good work that you've begun in us. I thank you, Lord, that that we're saved not by our own righteousness, but by the righteousness of Christ alone. And so we look to him. We do pray, Lord, that you would cause us to be increasingly faithful, increasingly obedient, to bear increasing fruit in keeping with salvation. That you would cause us, Lord, to joyfully live for you and worship you and to bear much fruit, fruit that will last. We pray that for ourselves as Lord individuals, as your people. We pray that, Lord, as a church, as your people, who you have called together, that we would bear much fruit, that we would walk in obedience and faithfulness, come what may. Pray, Lord, that you be glorified in us and through us. And I pray, Lord, for any who hear my voice, who are among that number, who have a false faith, a dead faith, one that cannot save. I pray just as you did for James, just as you did for Nicodemus, just as you have done for so many of us that you would call that which is shallow, that which is just a mere profession at this moment, that you would call that one to life. Right now in this moment, by your spirit, call them to to genuine faith, that they would lift their eyes to Christ, that they would trust savingly in him, surrendering all of themselves to him. Pray, God, that you would save them in your mercy and in your kindness, even now, right in this moment. Thank you, Lord, for your grace and for your active work in this world by your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen.